So everyone know what's uh, going on right now on TV, right? Academy Awards? Yeah. Academy Awards tonight, the night when uh, stars will be made and returning stars will be immortalized, at least in the uh, pantheon of Hollywood. It's a little bit of a strange phenomenon, isn't it, to call people stars, isn't that? I mean, it's a little bit strange, like... You're a, a, a star. Uh, in our culture, we have all kinds of stars. We have rock stars and uh, movie stars and sports stars. And, and sometimes even, you know, when you're really good at the chess club, you say, oh, you're a rock star chess player or something like that. Everyone uh, kind of has star attached to their name if they're a great performer. But what does it mean to call someone a star? It's saying like, Justin, you're a ball of gas on fire. No, that, that's, not, that's not what we mean when we say someone is a star. Uh, what does it take to be a star, for example? That might be a better way of getting to what a star is in our culture. What does it take to be a star? We might say someone, like when someone comes down the red carpet for the Academy Awards, like, she lights up the room with her gown or whatever, or the, the new leading man or whatever. Uh, he lights up the room with a smile. We talk about people being a star when they perform and when they have some kind of presence. Apparently, stars have talent, beauty, confidence, success. Now, what's mysterious about these stars is who decides the criteria for becoming a star? Who defines beauty? Why is it that, in my humble opinion, the best films of the year never win best film of the year? And sometimes they're not even, in, they're not even nominated for best film of the year. That drives me crazy. And therein lies the issue, I think. In my opinion. In your opinion. In whose opinion. You see, in our culture, being a star is a de designation given by a current of opinion that is entirely subjective. And yet I want to say, hear me out on this, I want to say that there is something inherently human or natural, or even good, about the idea of recognizing a quality of stardom. There's something awe-inspiring, something moving about a wonderful performance, whether it be on film, or in concert, or in sports, or a wonderful performance in the workplace. Some of us know rock star parents or rock star grandparents. Right? There's something awe-inspiring about when someone is in the zone, you might want to say, or when someone is just magnificent at being a human being. There's something about greatness, I think, that makes us want to rejoice. And when people really shine, there's a resonance. There's a resonance in me, at least, that, you know what? That's a glimpse of how humans are supposed to be. Could it be that when we shine like stars, we're experiencing the echo of a greater time that has passed? Maybe an existence that once was, and maybe an existence of a time that could be. This evening we're going to celebrate, or we are celebrating, Transfiguration Sunday, the day Jesus shone before his disciples. Let's see what this passage in Matthew has to say about who Jesus is and who we can be in him. Would you stand with me, please? We're looking at Matthew 17, verses 1 through 8. Six days later, 
Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down on the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. Holy Spirit, it was the desire of the great one Moses to see the glory of God revealed. I believe it is the desire of every human heart. All our desires are subordinate to wanting to know you for who you really are, for wanting to see you revealed. Because there's something inside of us that tells us if we're made in your image, then you are what we are supposed to be. I pray on this Transfiguration Sunday, as we open this good word to us, that you would reveal yourself. And that you would give us an accurate picture of who you're calling us to be. In the power of your Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I've been reading a, a book that Patrick McAvoy recommended to me. I think at least the author is Bill Bryson. And it's uh, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. It's all about just why is stuff in our houses the way it ought to be? Why is salt and pepper the standard, like spice of England in, in the United States. How did that even come to be? Like who would pick those two spices of all the other great spices in the world? One thing I'm finding really interesting about this book though is where we get so many of our sayings. Like, like here's one. Uh, when you're putting your kids to bed or you're going to bed, you might say, uh, good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite, right? So, so Bryson, of course, in all his curiosity, he does a, a study on, well, what's the history of beds? Like this is a strange invention. Like how do we get before we had celipostropedic beds, like what were the beds like? And so he's looking like in the 16 and 1700s, and he basically flat out says beds were horrible. They were horrible. The best bed in the world at that time in, in the Western world was a goose down, which he said inherently within a few hours you squish all the air out of it and you're on a hard surface anyway. And then there was goose feather, not the down, but the feather. And then you got things like sawdust and the worst was straw because you're always getting stuck with little straw pieces. They were horrible. And every single medium that they had for beds back then were just breeding grounds for bugs. Now... Before box springs, beds used to have an intertwined, interlaced twine rope underneath. And there was a, a device on the bottom that you could turn with a metal key. It was like a ratchet. And it could tighten up those strings each night because each night you kind of loosen them out. So literally, sleep tight. That means tighten up your, those, those under the mattress. Don't let the bed bugs bite. This is like a reality, like a real saying. Like seriously, sleep tight. Make sure you ratchet up your bed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, have you... Have you taken out your mattress lately and washed it out because those bed bugs are real. 
got me thinking about other common sayings we have, like mountaintop experiences. When we say we have a mountaintop experience, we might say that when we win a big race, or when we get a big promotion, or maybe you, you find the career of your dreams, or the person of your dreams, or maybe life is just going swimmingly. And you might say, looking in retrospect, I was on a mountaintop, I was having a mountaintop experience. Where does that saying come from, I wonder? Well, you could argue it comes from the scriptures. After all, there are plenty of stories, wonderful events that take place on mountaintops. Elijah, for example, stood on top of Mount Carmel when he confronted 450 prophets of Baal. He was the only one who stood for Yahweh. Against all of these odds, God met Elijah on a mountaintop and proved himself to be the living God. One of the most famous mountaintop experiences involves Moses, which Deb read just a minute ago. In the book of Exodus, Moses takes three companions with him. He goes up on a mountain. After six days, God speaks to him. And then he comes down the mountain, and his face is glowing. He doesn't even realize it, but it's glowing so brightly, people are afraid to look at him. So they, he has to put a veil over his face for uh, a number of days so that people could talk with him. So he doesn't shine them in the eyes. And of course... Jesus had some mountaintop experiences as well. In our story, just like Moses, Jesus takes three disciples. After six days, he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Moses had his face shining because he had been in the presence of Almighty God. Jesus is transfigured and shines because that's just who he really is. Now what's fascinating is that the ancient rabbis taught that before the fall of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve used to shine. Isn't that an interesting concept? They believed that before the fall, Adam and Eve, made in the image of God, used to shine, used to have a glory about them. They were literally stars, like way better than the Hollywood type. After their rebellion... They broke their intimacy with God. They ceased to shine. They lost their glow. Well, the text mentions Jesus going up the mountain six days after the events in the previous story. I pointed out that Moses too encountered God after being on the mountain six days. I think there's a loose tie there. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, we've seen how Jesus is doing things kind of like Moses did them, only better than Moses. As if, which I think is going on here, he's fulfilling all of the things that Moses was pointing to. But I think there's another reason six days is an important part of this story. It has to do with creation. It was on the sixth day that God created human beings, men and women, in His image. I think that Jesus has not only come to show us what true humanity looks like, He's come to show us the way we're supposed to be from the very beginning. Jesus was literally transfigured or transformed before his disciples. The Greek word behind that is where we get our word metamorphosis, right? So think all that butterflies and all that stuff, how they're transformed from one thing to another. And right before their very eyes, Jesus is transformed. The true glory of Jesus is shining for his closest disciples to see. And this is how Jesus is described in glory when he shows himself to St. John in the book of Revelation. 
His head and his hair are white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. Feet were like burnished bronze that were glowing as if they had been in a furnace. His voice was like many waters. I love that metaphor just being a person who spent some time on the sea. But think about last time you were at the beach, maybe a rocky coast. Maybe in the winter or the, 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 the spring when the waves are just crashing on the rocks. And if you're ever with someone, you almost have to yell to be heard. That overwhelming sound, the voice of Jesus, like the sound of many waters. And His face was like the sun shining in its strength. You can't even look at the sun directly. It's amazingly bright. So bright you couldn't stand to look at Jesus. That's the description of Jesus in the book of Revelation. After His resurrection. After He's on the throne in glory. And this is exactly the type of picture we have in Matthew 17. Before the cross. Before the resurrection. It's as if Jesus is peeling back the layer between heaven and earth. And saying just for a moment. I'm showing you all my Shekinah glory. All I really am. Of course, there's one other person in the Bible who's described like this. And if you want extra credit, go home and read Daniel 7. Because in Daniel 7, you will see Yahweh Himself described just like this. White, glowing like the sun. What might this be saying about Jesus' identity? I'll leave you with that. The story goes on. We learn that Moses and Elijah appeared and they're talking with Jesus. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Here's Jesus having this mountaintop experience, his glowing before his disciples, and two guys who have been dead for centuries show up talking with Jesus. What's going on? I think there's at least two things going on. First, the whole scripture in the first century rabbis could be summed up like this. The law and the prophets. That term encompassed all of what we would now call the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. Moses, of course, is the one who received the law. Moses represents the law. Elijah, one of the great prophets, represents the prophets. The law and the prophets were the authoritative word of God to Israel. It was God's self-revelation to them. Nothing was higher in their mind than the law and the prophets. Well, here on the mountaintop, you have Moses who received the law from God, Elijah the great prophet, the law and the prophets on the mountain with Jesus. But Jesus is outshining them. Jesus is fulfilling the law and the prophets. And at the end of the story, Peter, James, and John are left with Jesus alone. No more law and prophets in the story. The law and the prophets... Moses and Elijah, their lives, their ministry, their word, pointed toward Jesus, pointed toward the Messiah, pointed toward the day when God's kingdom will begin breaking in. This story is telling us, guess what? It's here. 
And from that point on, Jesus is the authorized interpreter, the fulfiller of the law and the prophets. So whenever Jesus and His apostles, right, so those would be the epistles in the New Testament, whenever those writings, whenever those scriptures seem to come into conflict with the Hebrew scriptures, Jesus trumps them. So here's an example. You've heard that it was said, um, you shall not commit murder. Everyone who commits murder shall be liable to the court, right? And Jesus says, I say to you, Everyone who is angry, who harbors anger in his heart towards a brother or a sister, shall be guilty before the court. So there Jesus is getting behind the ethic, the ethic behind the law. He's saying, this is what God is intending. I've got a a more robust life for you to live into. Last week in our text, we saw how Jesus fulfilled the food laws so that followers of Jesus no longer have to eat kosher. Good news, right? I know Jenny had bacon this week. Facebook. So did I, so did I. Yeah. But there's another reason besides this law and the prophet motif that I think Moses and Elijah are on this mountain. Both Moses and Elijah are listed in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and they're listed in the last chapter of that book and they're listed in the last little pericope last little section of that book both of these figures are what we call eschatological figures all this fancy for they both have stuff going on in their life part of the story points to when this rescuer from God would come in fact this is kind of creepy the way that God you know God says this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased what does he say listen to him if you look up Deuteronomy 18 God reveals to Moses and to the people of Israel there is one coming a great prophet you will listen to him I think that there's something going on here with these two on that mountaintop Moses and Elijah are there to show that the day of salvation had come and the focus of that salvation is Jesus. Now how would you respond to this overwhelming scene? Let's say you're one of those three. You're up there, you see your Lord shining. You can't even look at Him because He's so bright. He's talking to Elijah and Moses. You know the scriptures because... You're a Jewish person. By 13, you have the Torah memorized, especially if you're a male at that time. So you know these stories. You know, oh my goodness, something significant is going on here. How would you respond? We know how Peter responded. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles, one for you, of course, and and one for Elijah and one for Moses. While he was still speaking, I believe the message says, while he was babbling on, or something like that, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice came out of the cloud and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Let's talk about Peter's response for a minute. Love Peter. Peter's a guy who lives out loud. You can say what you want about Peter, but Peter lives with passion, and I love that. In chapter 14, the disciples are in a boat in the Sea of Galilee, being tossed about by the storm. Jesus comes walking on the water to them, and Peter says, Lord, if it's you, 
Let me come out on the water with you. I just, who even thinks that? But he jumps out, he's on the water, and of course, you know, his, his faith falters. In chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples, Hey, who are people saying I am? And you know, oh, maybe you're Elijah, maybe you're Jeremiah, one of these famous dudes. And then he says, uh, Who do you think I am? And, and Peter, yet again, I think you are the Christ. I think you are the Son of the living God. I don't know what that means, but you're something special. You know, he's just, he's out there. But then a few verses later, Jesus tells his disciples, You're right. But this Son of God, this Christ, you don't understand my story yet. Because I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be given into the hands of the enemy. And Peter, bless his heart, I don't know that I would say any different. No, Lord. May it never be. No. Is there another way? And Jesus calls his words satanic. Because he's not on the agenda of God. Peter is a doer. He's full of life. And yet at times, he acts foolishly. In this story, he wants to do something. He is there experiencing this amazing scene. Jesus is transfigured before him and he wants to respond. So he offers to build three tabernacles, fancy for tent, right? Dwelling place. He wants to set up a camp. He wants to contain this moment, to memorialize it, to capture the presence of God in this great scene. I mean, I totally resonate with that. There he is with his two best friends and his Lord. And I could just stay up on that mountain all day. Oh, I'll, let's just camp out a little while. You can tell us stories and we can just live in your glow, Lord. But once again... Even though he meant well, Peter got it wrong. You see, mountaintop experiences, listen to this, mountaintop experiences are always for something else. They're not just about the experience. So Elijah, up on the Mount Carmel, he defeated the prophets of Baal on that mountain so that... God's name would be glorified and people would respond by following Yahweh. Elijah doesn't stay up and bask in the glory of this amazing victory. In fact, what happens to Elijah is he goes down from the mountain, he gets depressed, and is suicidal until God intervenes in his life. That sounds a lot more like real life to me. Moses went up on the mountain had an amazing encounter with the living God. You know, that cloud represents the presence of God. So the cloud is on the mountain for six days. Moses is up there, I don't know what he's doing, basking in this glory. The Lord comes to him, gives him the, the commandments. Think of how awesome that, was be, that would be. But Moses doesn't say, I know, I'll build a temple up here, and I'll just stare at these cool tablets all day. He, Moses had a mountaintop experience so that he could go down the mountain and give the life-giving law to the people. See, the mountaintop experience is for something else. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes up on a mountain, gives the amazing sermon on the mount, 
But then he goes down from the mountain and lives out the Sermon on the Mount. Healing people, reconciling people who are on the outside, setting people free by casting out demons. And Jesus goes up on this mountain in Matthew 17 for something. He goes up to show that the law and the prophets are fulfilled. He goes up to show his true identity. Jesus is transfigured and shown to be the one that the law and the prophets were talking about. He then is affirmed by the Father with the same words that the Father spoke over him at the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, in Matthew 3, when he's baptized, Jesus is obedient to the Father by going through a process, going through a baptism that he didn't need. Baptism was for forgiveness of sin. Jesus didn't sin. In the transfiguration, God affirms his pleasure with Jesus and now calls people to obey his only Son. And by the way, where does that voice come out of? Shout it out. A cloud. Yes, it comes out of a bright cloud. Just like God revealed Himself to the Israelites in the desert. Just like God revealed Himself in a cloud to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. Just like God revealed Himself to the Israelites when Solomon dedicated the temple. The cloud of brightness with voices come out. That's Yahweh's presence. And anytime Yahweh is present, mortals go to their faces on the ground and tremble in fear. And there's the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, closest Jesus' inner three, trembling in fear. What they had just experienced was in the truest sense of the word, this very overused word, but this is the real place for it, awesome. Worthy of knee-buckling, speechless rendering, mental category-defying awe. And then suddenly the cloud lifts. And while lying on the ground in terror, Jesus comes to them. And the first thing he does, he reaches out and touches them. And then he speaks, arise. Do not be afraid. What words. What wonderful comfort. Trust me, close your eyes hear these words afresh I don't know how you're feeling right now how low you might be what troubles of the world you are carrying Jesus says arise do not be afraid hmm. receive that I believe herein lies one of the main reasons for this transfiguration. I think that this event is not just about Jesus' identity. It's about your identity. It's about my identity. It's about Jesus' mission of making us who we were always created to be. Humans that shine with the glory of God. Jesus' words to his disciples... Arise, do not be afraid, stem from the same Greek word that speaks of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. Jesus is showing us a snippet 
of what resurrection life will be like. It will be an embodied existence where we are so connected to God that we will glow in His radiance. We will shine with His glory. You know, it's a shame that in recent days, uh, many churches distill the gospel. This was what I was steeped in as well. Uh, we distill the gospel into equaling forgiveness of sin. From the very earliest writings of the church, we see a much, more, a much more robust gospel that includes forgiveness of sin, that starts with forgiveness of sin, but also includes new creation, a new way of being human. And one metaphor popularized by Apollinarius of Laodicea speaks of iron that's plunged into hot coals by a blacksmith. And as it is in the presence of those coals, the iron begins to, to glow. And the heat rises up the iron and it becomes unclear where the fire ends and the iron begins. They become as one. The iron never loses its property. It is always iron. The fire remains separate. It is always fire. But when they're in that close proximity, the iron begins to glow with the heat and the power of the fire. And so it is with us. We are the iron. The coals are the heart and the presence of Jesus. As we remain in Him, we begin to be like Him. And when we choose to reject His presence, we begin to lose our shine. You may notice that in some forms of art, especially in the olden days, uh, you see saints depicted with halos. And we think, oh, that's kind of funny, that's old school. Um, Richard Foster says, you know, I have a theory on why people were painted with halos. They had them. Story after story exists of people, the people of God, glowing from time to time when they were in God's presence in a special way. The sayings of the Desert Fathers, for example, tell many of these stories. When Arsenius the Great was praying, his disciples saw him just like fire, and they were terrified. Abba Pombo, I'm not making that up, uh, is said to have shone like lightning at certain times when he was praying. This shining that we're talking about isn't some kind of party trick. It's not just there to show people how holy you are. The great ones who have shined throughout history have also been the primary movers and shakers in changing the world through action. The difference is, is that they don't just start doing stuff. It's that their action is rooted in the voice of God. Listen to Him. Their action is rooted in their relationship with Christ. They begin to take on His glow, His heartbeat, His power, His presence, His call. And then they respond. So one of the great inner travelers, Basil the Great, one of the Cappadocian fathers, is also one who started monastic communities and started hospitals. He didn't just have this great idea, I know sick people need a hospital. It was his presence, being present with God in prayer that then birthed this idea and the power to get it done. The shining is not just for famous saints of history. Think for a moment. Those people in your life. who Maybe for a season, maybe just in one encounter, they shone, maybe not visibly, but was there a quality of their life? Did you sense that their word was better than they knew how to speak? Did you sense that God is speaking to me through this person? Did you sense that maybe 
this person I'm talking to right now, they know God in a way I don't know God. That's, that's the shining I'm talking about. Think of those times maybe you were in a situation when you acted better than you knew you were capable of. Like, you had a conversation with someone, or you did some deed, you don't know why you did it. You go home, you're like, dang, who was that? That wasn't me. A time when maybe there was more of Jesus' power in your thoughts and your actions than your, than your own ego. I think that that's how life is supposed to be all the time. Hear me, I don't think that it's going to be like that all the time for you and me. I know how fallen I am. I know how corrupt I am. But this does two things. One, this is the life we get to have in the resurrection all the time. Oh, something to look forward to. It is also something we can experience more of as we remain in Christ. As we're like iron thrust into the coals of Christ. We are created to shine as we abide in Jesus and Jesus abides in us. Peter wanted to set up these tabernacles, these external houses to house all this experience, to house the glory, to stay there and remain in it. But John tells us, the Apostle John, that Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us, among the church. You and I are the house of God's presence. Peter wanted to make some like leather skin tents. God says, uh-uh, I want to be in you, in my people, in the church. I was just at this uh, seminar this week with Daryl Johnson, professor up at, at Regent, and it was kind of this day of refreshment for, for clergy and stuff like that. And he said some, he said a lot of profound things. One of the things I just want to share in context of this is he says, when Jesus is in you, everything that is in Jesus is in you. So you've got transfigured Jesus on the mountain. That same Jesus, we, when we talk about Christ being in us, that same Jesus is in us. So I've got great news this evening. Even if you are trembling under the fears and weight of the world, even if you are crushed under the shame of your own sin and the nagging of your own doubts, Jesus is the one who comes to you first, who gently and appropriately touches you and says, Arise, do not be afraid. Jesus is the one who, of course, died for our sin, sent His Spirit that we might shine. And what I'm about to share with you, as we, this is our last Sunday before Lent, so what I'm about to share with you, I need your word on something. You are not going to turn this into a list of rules to do. Okay? Say that with me. I will not turn this into a list of rules to do that will make me feel guilty. Okay. This is fun. Say, I want to shine. Yes! Okay. So, what I'm about to share with you are not rules. 
And they are by no means, this is not an exhaustive list, this is a starter kit for Lent. These are some simple pathways that have been given to us as gifts. Pathways of how to remain in Jesus and experience the shining. Not, not the movie, like the, real, the, the good shining, yeah. <laughs> and if you're a note taker, this is your grave. This is where all the payoff is for you. Note takers, get ready. Number one, I've got four things with some subpoints. so get ready. The first one is listen to Him. You know, that's what the Father says in this passage. Okay, you just saw who my Son is and how He is over the law and the prophets, how His glory is revealed. Listen to Him. There is no other authority above Him. Listen to Him. How, you may say, I can't see Him. And I haven't heard him talk very much. Okay. Basic 101 answers. The scripture. The scripture. This is not a guilt trip. This is not a guilt trip. But if you want to shine, if you are iron, and you want to get close to the heart of God, ask yourself, how often am I in the scripture? Okay. And, and, and here's the deal. Lent starts on Wednesday. Ash Wednesday. And I don't know what your background is with Lent. You know, a lot of times we think, oh, Lent is that thing where you give up everything you like for 40 days until Easter. Okay, that's not what Lent is about. Lent literally means spring, springtime. And it's, it's, think of spring cleaning like you do. Like the sun's coming out more, the days are longer. I get to spring clean my heart and my soul to prepare to celebrate well on Easter. So sometimes that might mean giving up something to gain something better. Okay, so if you're saying, I don't have time in my schedule to get into the Scripture. Lent. Oh, what a gift, right? Because you could say something like this. I know. I don't need to watch as much TV every night. I could, I could shave off that one show and I could maybe read the Scripture. Or, or, or join a small group or you know, you know see what I'm saying so Lent can be a gift to us we can give up something to gain something better and you know what might happen is you say well I really like this and I'm starting to shine and after Lent you say I want to keep this up okay so that's my prayer for you uh, so scripture prayer it's another hard one isn't it I, I know it's hard for me I confess it's hard for me and uh, so and this is a completely unfair luxury because it's part of my job to pray, right? Um, but I have, I have taken some time. I'm, I'm busy just like you are. And I've taken some time and I've said, I, I'm going to commit to prayer walking this neighborhood. And I know I have some more flexible schedule than many of you. But what, I am, what I've done is I've built in a discipline that's going to force me to pray. It's carved out. It's on my schedule. You can't make an appointment with me on those times when I'm walking. I'll say, I'm, I'm busy with someone. And I am, with Jesus. Ha ha, you just didn't know. <laughs> and so what I want to encourage you to do, like, what would it take? What will it take? This is a serious question. What would it take for you to spend, if you're not doing this at all, five minutes, ten minutes with the Lord, what would it take? This is how we were created to be. To be with Christ. So listen to Him. Sub, uh, now we've got some things going. Scripture, prayer, that's how you listen to Him. Regular participation in a local church. Hey, listen, I'm preaching to the, the literal choir here, right? Because you're here. Jesus, follow Him in, in His ministry. What's He always doing? He's always going to synagogue. 
And he's always got 12 dudes around him, and women, and he's got an inner group in that little group. So he's got three closest friends. Guys, I'm speaking to you. Men, who's your best friend? Don't say your wife. She can be, but I'm just saying dudes. Like, we have a real problem, I think. Most men don't have best friends anymore. I'm not talking about just watching sports best friends. I'm talking like, who are you sharing your stuff with? We need each other to walk these things out. Right? So number one is listen to Him. Number two, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. If you're following Jesus and you haven't been baptized, talk to me. Talk to me. I'd love to have that conversation. If you've been baptized in the church, you've received the Holy Spirit. But there's this strange tension in Scripture where you've got Paul who all the time, even though he knows believers have the Holy Spirit, he's still constantly exhorting us to pray for more of the gifts of the Spirit, for more of the presence and power of the Spirit. I think that there's, there's a relational aspect there. Like we're not just receive it one time and clones, like we don't have to think about it. I notice significant difference in my life. I notice a significant difference when we're up there before service praying Holy Spirit, fall on the service. Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds. Because when we do that more often than not, some of you come afterwards and you say, I really heard God today. I really, uh, this word spoke to me, or that song spoke to me, or this person spoke to me. That's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are desperately in need of the Spirit's ministry. Listen to Him, Holy Spirit. In just a minute, we're going to take up the sacraments. This is the third way uh, that Jesus has given us to encounter Him, to put the iron in the fire, to get close and intimate. And the fourth one is enjoy life. What do you do for joy? Do you know that God created this place for us to enjoy? Did you know that God takes joy when you have legitimate joy. I know in some of our upbringings, maybe some of our church background, oh no, that, that, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, he doesn't really want me to really enjoy. I'm supposed to be suffering and, trust me, you, you know this well, suffering is just going to come. You don't get to choose when that happens. But, but Jesus was always at dinner parties whether he wasn't hanging on crosses, right? He was always enjoying the good, the fruit of the, uh, of the vine and, and good food and good company. He was in the wilderness all the time. We kind of like that in Bellingham. There's a reason recreation has the words recreation in it. Think about that. What, what happens to your soul when you're able to recreate, to recreate, to do something you enjoy doing, to be passionate about? I think we get closer to God when we enjoy the things that He's given us. Just like you would enjoy watching someone you gave a gift to actually use it and enjoy it. Wouldn't that, that, that gives me great pleasure when I give a gift and then someone actually enjoys it and uses it. 
Lord Jesus, we pray for your um, grace. I keep coming back to that image of uh, not, not, not necessarily your glory, but that one who is so glorious would also be the one who comes down and gently touches and calls us to arise to resurrection, who calls us to new life, who calls us to not fear. I pray by the power of your Spirit that our anxieties would be cast away and that you would put a legitimate hunger in us for more of you. We have filled ourselves with so many counterfeit things to fill the voids in us, Lord. We've developed uh, a taste for the second best and third best. I pray that you would give us a, a divine hunger for more of you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.